Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, earlier we sang these words, and now we speak them back to you a second time. Uh, We acknowledge that we have no offering to bring, that we bring nothing, and that you are the offering. Um, That applies to us as listeners to the Scriptures, as worshipers. It applies to me as a preacher. The offering that everyone needs now is you, not me. And um, we, we take confidence in the promise that you can be everything that we need. Uh, so, Lord, would you speak to us in this part of our worship service? Make yourself known in our hearts uh, so that you would overflow in our lives whether we are at great distance from you or whether we think that we uh, are so mature in you that we have nothing left to learn. Speak to us, we pray. Amen. Um, They were waiting for what? They were waiting for true freedom, not just for themselves, but for the whole world. He knows that he's not going to die until he has met the sign that true freedom has come into the world. And she's been worshiping and waiting day and night in the temple for at least 60 of her 84 years. Their names are Simeon and Anna. Now we're cheating. We're jumping ahead in the story. Um, Christmas is next Sunday, but today we're talking about a story and characters involving um, an event after Jesus' birth. We're cheating, skipping ahead today so that on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day we can focus on the birth of Jesus. Today we're focusing on two people named Simeon and Anna. Jesus in this story is about six weeks old. Mary and Joseph have walked from Bethlehem about six miles to Jerusalem to offer a sacrifice at the temple there. And in the temple courts, they meet these people who had been waiting, Simeon and Anna, waiting to meet the baby who would bring true freedom to the whole world. Emily's going to read for us. This morning's scripture comes from Luke chapter 2, verses 25 through 38. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for a revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, 
Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, my shoe is coming untied. There's not a gracious way to do this while standing up here in front of you, so I'm going to put up a pretty picture and let you be distracted for a minute. This is a painting by Rembrandt. There we go. Um, it's called Simeon and Anna in the Temple. So it, Rembrandt, Dutch painter from the 1600s. There's so many layers of meaning in this painting. Um, you'll, you'll notice that this is Simeon is looking straight at Mary and speaking to her. And as Emily just read for us, um, Simeon had something to say about the baby Jesus. And Joseph and, mother, and, and, and Mary marveled at what was being said. But then Simeon turned to Mary and said to her, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. He spoke those words just to her. That's the moment that Rembrandt has chosen to paint here in this particular portrayal of this event, right? The moment when he turns to Mary and begins to speak to her, um, all the layers of symbolism here. Notice how he's portrayed falling and rising. So um, there are a lot of things in this painting that are just straight up and down, right? Vertical. See that pillar, that column? And then notice the posture of, of the, the, the figures, right? Simeon is sitting straight up. Joseph, even though he's kneeling, is, is erect, you know, shoulders back. Uh, Mary is, is straight up as well. And, and here's Anna. And, and so they are among those who are going to rise because of what Jesus is bringing into the world. And then you'll notice subtly, um, the whole painting kind of has these shafts of light cutting across at, at these angles diagonally. This angle kind of representing falling. This baby has been appointed in such a way to such a role that many will fall and rise because of him. Actually, the word translated rising in this text can also be translated resurrection. It's the same word used for resurrection later in the Gospels. So something about destruction and resurrection is represented in Jesus. And, and Rembrandt's tried to capture that in all the themes of light and dark in this uh, painting. You see the, the light up in this upper corner and, and all this darkness down in the bottom and at the edges and um, even that kind of falling and rising symbolism is represented on the faces of Mary and Anna. Anna's just full of joy. She can't wait to burst into 
rapture, just saying this, this is the one we've been waiting for. She comes up right at that moment. Mary's face reflects more of this heaviness and weight because she just heard these heavy words from Simeon. Your baby has come, and he will cause many to fall and many to rise again. And he will be a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also. Mary, a sword is going to pierce through your soul also. Well, that means a sword is going to pierce through someone else's soul too. Oh, the opposition to this baby will result in his soul being pierced by a sword. And Mary, when that happens to him, that same grief will pierce your soul also. All those layers of meaning baked into this painting. There's a layer of significance here that's, um, that actually comes from Luke's gospel. It's this pattern of pairing a story about a man and a story about a woman. Luke could have easily told us what Simeon said without mentioning Anna. Or he could have told us what Anna did without mentioning Simeon. Luke has instead told us a story about a man, Simeon, and then back-to-back with it, a story about a woman, Anna. Luke does that frequently. Over a dozen times in his gospel, you'll find these pairings of stories about men and women. Why? What's that supposed to symbolize? Rembrandt created his symbols with a paintbrush. Luke creates symbolism through words. What's he trying to symbolize in these pairings of stories about men and women? Well, it's the same thing that we heard Simeon say. Jesus is bringing redemption to the whole human race, men and women alike. He's bringing true freedom for the whole world. Let's unpack that a bit today. Let's talk about true freedom. I want to begin with an assumption that's current in our world. So throughout the contemporary Western world, there is an assumption made about true freedom. And it runs something like this. Real human freedom requires total absence of constraints. If there's any external constraint on something, then you don't have true freedom. That's the assumption of our world. That's the assumption of our culture. You would find it expressed in the art world. It would sound something like this. Creativity is stifled by boundaries. So an artist can't truly be creative if you have any boundaries on their work. So an artist should be able to paint whatever they want, however they want to. Draw whatever they want, however they want. Make a movie. Tell the story however you want. The moment you put boundaries on it, you're stifling creativity. That's a common assumption. It's the same assumption about freedom applied to works of art. Um, you find this same assumption applied to advertisements, right? No rules, just right. You're not going to have a great experience at a restaurant if there are rules. 
Because if it's real joy, if it's real happiness, if it's, a, if it's really worth spending your money on, if it's really going there on a date night or a guy's night out or a galentine's, whatever the occasion is, there can't be any rules. No rules, just right. And you know there aren't any rules because the kangaroo is upside down. Right? Apparently, even the law of gravity is suspended when you go to Outback. No rules, just right. There are ad campaigns like this for um, Little Caesars. I don't know if you've seen that where the dude, you know, strips his shirt off. No rules. Yeah. They quickly tell him to put his shirt back on. Uh, apparently at Little Caesars, there is at least one rule. And then um, even soy sauce, Kikaman soy sauce, has this ad campaign that's around the slogan of no rules. You can put this on anything you want. Right. And everything about the ads, happy. People are dancing around, vibrant colors, popping they don't mention the fact that the bottle only works if the law of gravity is operating. So, again, to sell our product, there has to be at least, well, at least one rule in the universe. But this, why do, so, it's pizza, it's steakhouse, it's soy sauce. Why can you sell so many things saying no rules? Because we live in a world that says that's how you get to real joy and freedom. As you take away all the boundaries, all the rules, all the constraints Applied to spirituality, it usually runs like this. Spirit and law are contradictory. Authentic spirituality means you can't have any commandments. Let's, let's see if that's the kind of freedom that Jesus is coming to bring. Everything Luke is telling us it sounds very different from that assumption of our culture. Let's read again verse 27 of Luke chapter 2. Simeon came in the spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up into his arms and blessed God and said. So here's a man in whom the Holy Spirit has been working, and the Holy Spirit was upon him, verse 25 says. And the Holy Spirit, verse 26 says, had revealed to this man that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's anointed king. The Lord's Christ is the way the ESV translates it. And he came in the Spirit. So that's three verses in a row where Luke is telling us the Holy Spirit is at work here. When Jesus comes into the world, the Holy Spirit is at work. And yet, verse 27 says, This man, so filled with the Holy Spirit, meets Mary and Joseph because they had come to the temple to do what the law commanded. If you read through Luke's gospel carefully, you will see this, this complementarity running throughout the whole thing. This pairing of spirit and law. You won't ever run into this scenario that says if there are commandments given by God, then the Spirit has no place to work. And you won't ever hear this false division that says if the Holy Spirit's at work, then there can't be any rules. Because this, this modern idea of freedom isn't, isn't the kind of freedom that Jesus has come to bring. Now, how do we know that Luke is even talking about freedom in 
these words. Well, at the very end of verse 38, Anna came up at this very hour while Simeon is speaking to Mary, and she began to give thanks to God and speak about God to everyone who is waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Redemption is a word about freedom. Anytime you hear the word redeem or redemption or redeemer in any ancient conversation, including the Bible, you're talking about freedom. Someone is in prison and they need redemption. Someone is a slave and they need to be redeemed. Someone has been taken captive or is being held hostage and you've got to pay the ransom to free them. Redemption is a word about freedom. But it's a freedom that's always defined by a certain constraint. It's a freedom that comes with an, an attached command. The word redemption always means that someone has to pay a price. If you want to set the prisoner free, great. But here's the law of redemption. Someone has to go into their cell and take their place. You want to you set free this kidnapped person who's being held for ransom. Redemption is great. Freedom is awesome. But here's the law of redemption. Someone's got to pay the ransom price to set them free. Or in some stories about redemption, to free someone, another actually has to lay down their life as a substitute. That's the law of redemption. Freedom and this law that someone has to pay the price to purchase that freedom. Those two things are not incompatible in the biblical story. There's always a constraint around freedom in Scripture. A price that has to be paid. That's what Simeon is talking about when he looks Mary in the face and says, This child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and he will be a sign that is opposed. He will pay the price. He will be rejected so that others can rise. And a sword will pierce through your soul, Mary, also, when it pierces through his soul, the price Jesus will pay for freedom is rejection and death. See, Jesus has come to bring a kind of freedom that's different from the one that we typically assume in our world. It's a freedom that is not focused on unconstrained individual choice. It's a freedom that changes us so that we find joy in giving ourselves for someone besides ourselves. Jesus talks about that freedom with the word love. Two great commandments, two great laws, rules, requirements, constraints for flourishing human uh, life in this world. Number one, give yourself for the God who is outside of you. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Number two, give yourself for other people who are outside of you. There's something bigger than you in the world. 
live a life of love for God and love for neighbor. And if you do that, Jesus says, you will feel, fulfill all of God's commandments. This true freedom that Jesus has come to bring. It involves not just always getting to do exactly what I choose. It involves finding joy in living for the glory and good of someone other than myself. In 2008, a a man named Dana Adam Shapiro made a movie called Monogamy. He interviewed 51, I believe is the number, 51 couples who had broken up. Maybe they were on the way to getting married and they broke it off. Or maybe they were already married and they got divorced. And um, someone asked him afterward, why didn't you interview any happily married couples for this movie? And his answer was, they're all the same. They're all so boring. Right? Marriage is a constraint. How could it lead to real freedom and real joy and real excitement? All you're going to get if you play within the boundaries of that kind of commitment is boredom. No rules, just right. Let's sell soy sauce. Let's break off our marriages. Let's Stop committing ourselves to one another in relationships. Let's order steak with upside-down kangaroos. It's all one big theme. Now, I read about this in a a book by Tim and Kathy Keller that I'd recommend called The Meaning of Marriage. And if you read that, a little footnote to this story says, um, studies have shown that if unhappily married people will work at it for five more years, after they discover that they're unhappy, they will find happiness. In other words, at the moment, it looks like the only thing that this relationship is offering me is pain. But if I can find joy in giving myself for the other, even if at the moment it's not happy, then there's something about the way God has wired this world that we'll find on the other side of that self-giving increased joy and increased happiness. Jesus has brought a kind of freedom into this world that's based on self-giving, sacrificial love. It does not come easy to us. It did not come easy to him. And so, when he is six weeks old, there are already people talking about how he will be rejected and how a sword will pierce his soul because true freedom comes at a cost. It is not natural to you and me to love in this way. Jesus has to create it in us. He has to bring it into our world, and it comes at a cost to him. Who gets to share in this freedom? Who is Jesus coming to bring redemption to? Jesus came into the world, and he will come again. He came, and he will come. 
to bring true freedom to the whole world. Here's another assumption uh, that's alive in our context. It runs something like this. Truth that's rooted in a specific time or place or context has no relevance to other times or places or contexts. This is one of the reasons why, um, well, we'll get there in a minute. Let's just unpack it a bit. Translate this. this. This is stating it in kind of a theoretical way. Practically, it sounds like this. If it happened a long time ago, it's inferior and ridiculous. If it's happening right now, it's superior and it's sophisticated. That's one of the assumptions running throughout our culture. And it's expressed in the fact that we divide ourselves up by generations. If you aren't of the same generation as I am, then you don't know what good music is. I'm sorry. Right? If, if you've never seen a black and white TV show, then you don't know what good entertainment is. I'm telling you. No, 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 no. If you know that black and white TVs used to exist, you are so old that I don't, I don't want to hear anything from you about entertainment. Right? This is how we kind of divide ourselves up. If you're not in the same generation as I am, then you are either stupidly young or you're stupidly old. But either way, you're stupid. And, and only people who are my age aren't. Isn't that the way we live? Right? And it's all based on this faulty assumption that, hey, if something's true for one time or place, then it's totally irrelevant in any other time or place. Notice how self-centered and narrow-minded that makes us. We start to read in the Bible about um, Jerusalem. Yeah, his parents went to Jerusalem. Why do I care about Jerusalem? It's somewhere else. All I'm interested, there may be truth over there, but that's truth for there. We're here. I don't care about there. We read the story, Simeon. He's an old man who lived a long time ago. Why do I care about old people? Why do I care about people who aren't alive now? Um, You keep reading the story. We read this phrase, he's waiting for the consolation of Israel. Already you start, consolation sounds like an old-fashioned word. Don't talk to me. It sounds like it's rooted in Latin. Nobody speaks Latin anymore. I don't care about that word. Israel, where's that? That's not my country. I don't live there. I don't care about any of this. See how this kind of assumption, it really makes the world very small. Suddenly all I can be interested in is what's happening right here, right now, to people who are just like me. Isn't it a good thing that our God is not like that? That our God wants to widen our world so that we become interested in people, no matter when they lived or might live in the future. No matter where they are right now, no matter what language they speak, no matter whether their culture is the same as mine, they may or may not know how to work my fancy watch. They may or may not laugh at the fact that I have a digital watch with an analog face on it. 
I preach shorter sermons when I use the analog face, so you're happy about this. Um, Listen to the fact that our God uses specific historic realities to bring true freedom to the whole world. Simeon says about this one child, this little baby who was born in a very specific time and a very specific place, Simeon says he was brought to bring light for revelation to the Gentiles, the nations of the world, and glory to your people Israel. Simeon is is reflecting the language of the prophet Isaiah, who said in Isaiah chapter 52, verses 9 and 10, that one day God is going to cause the waste places and the deserts of the world to flourish and bloom and blossom like gardens. There's going to be so much prosperity and life abundant in our world Why? Because the Lord has comforted his people. That's what the word consolation means. Israel was waiting. Simeon was waiting for a sign that the day of comfort has come. He was waiting for a sign that would help him to know that one day the promise of, of waste places becoming gardens, of deserts blooming and flourishing, will come true. Anna used a different phrase from this same passage in Isaiah. Um, She was speaking to those who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. God has redeemed Jerusalem. And he's done this before the eyes of all the nations so that all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. And that's what Luke is telling us about. Jesus is six weeks old and already we're talking about the fact that every person on the face of this planet can experience the true freedom that Jesus has come to bring into this world. If you're dismissing Jesus as someone who's not relevant to you because He was born a long time ago rather than in the 21st century. Let me invite you to rethink that. There are a whole lot of beautiful things in our world that were created before the 21st century. If you're dismissing Jesus as relevant to your daily life, now maybe you're like, he's relevant to my spiritual life, but my ordinary everyday stuff What did Jesus know about modern technology? What did Jesus know about being a teenager in Atlanta in the 21st century? Jesus knew a whole lot about being opposed. And Jesus knew a whole lot about suffering. Because when he was six weeks old, people were already talking to his mother about the fact that a sword was going to pierce his soul one day. It would pierce her soul too. Jesus knew a lot about your life. He knows a lot about your life. He's not just a baby born then and there. He is the Son of God who died and rose again. And he offers you true freedom right here, right now. Maybe you know that already. And you've embraced Jesus and the salvation that he brings. Today's a good time to recommit to living out the freedom of love 
where we push back against this tendency in our world to say, it's all about me getting my choices. And love is about living for someone else's glory other than my own, someone else's good other than my own. I want to notice something about Rembrandt's painting. It took me a while to realize this. In most paintings of this scene, older paintings, everyone in the scene has a halo. Mary and Joseph, Simeon and Anna. Only one person has a halo in Rembrandt's painting. It's this baby. That's what Simeon was saying. That's who Anna was celebrating. Why? Rembrandt painted all these diagonal lines going this way in the painting, representing the falling that we experience living in this world of rejection and swords piercing souls. There's only one thing on an angle that pushes in the opposite direction. Do you see it? Simeon is holding this baby, Jesus, who's going just the opposite. He's pushing back against the fall. He's pushing back against these twisted, uh, distorted ideas of what real freedom is. He's pushing back against the selfishness that says, only my generation counts. He's pushing back against those who would pierce the souls of others with violence, with suffering, with pain. And he's doing that for anyone who lives in any nation, at any time, from any culture, anyone who would come to him and say, Jesus, I need you to be that for me. That's why we celebrate every year. Celebrate the same thing. Because it's always true. Jesus came, and he'll come again, bringing true freedom for the whole world.